Good morning. I just want to say thank you for being here. Just what a gift it is to sing together. And just that's just every week I just am taken aback by just the, the, the gift that we have together. So thank you for being here. Um, but if you can, go ahead and turn with me in to Titus chapter 2. We're going to keep rolling with where we've been the last few weeks. Uh, we're going to be in verses 11 through 14 today. But while you're turning there, I'm going to give you a glimpse kind of into our stage of parenthood. Um, if you have a toddler or you've had a toddler, you'll know where I'm at. Um, we've entered the stage where everything has a question mark at the end of it. Like, if, if something exists, Selah needs to know what it is and why it is, right? And, and I think this is, and I'm going to make this argument, this is not a biblical argument, but I think I'm going to, I'm going to argue that this is Paul showing us that he was, had to be a parent or an uncle or something, uh, because he, what he's doing today is he's kind of preemptively answering the question, why? Um, but we'll kind of get into it a little bit, and, and maybe it's just me sympathizing with Paul here, but he seems kind of like a weathered father who knows he's going to get asked, why? Why? And so he just goes ahead and answers. Um, and like I said, if you have a toddler, maybe you understand where we're at. But uh, let's go ahead and pick up. We're going to be in verse 11, and uh, I'll, I'll let you decide. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And I just, I think I do this every time I get a chance to preach. But like, look, just, just sit in that passage for a minute. Like this is Paul helping us look back to see that the light of the world has been revealed in a person. And he's no longer hidden for years, thousands of years. People had to look ahead. Old Testament saints looking ahead, hoping for a savior that they could not call on by name. But we have a gift to call upon a Savior by name. A complete revelation of God himself. I, just, I, don't, I don't want us to, as we kind of break down these passages, to kind of treat it like something to be dissected. But this is something that we get to dive deeper into. And as we head into our passage, I, I want to look back. I know that not all of us have been here uh, for our whole series of Titus. So I just want to look back at where we've been. We saw the introduction where, where Paul was kind of bringing out kind of the start of his arguments and greeting the church and Titus specifically. We saw Paul commending the importance of faithful eldership in the church. Then we, we learned about his warnings against false teachers and how it's a church's responsibility to defend against false teaching. Finally, last week, we got to hear about the calls to obedience for all of God's people. Now in this, Paul's been giving Titus and the churches that he serves a blueprint, as it were, of how to build a church, what they should look like and be like. And this blueprint serves still today as a challenge to our misconceptions and our worldly ideas of what a church is. And as Clay reminded us last week, it is so easy for us to be reactionary. We are people who live in time and in space. And so it, it's almost unintentionally natural for us to build our faith as a response 
to our circumstances or the world around us rather than the firm foundation of Scripture. But here's where Paul's argument begins to shift to the why of everything we've heard so far. And what I want you to catch as we follow along is that first word Paul uses in our passage, for. So this is a transitory statement where where Paul's argument is now changing from what the church should do as we've looked at. Now today we're going to start looking at to why the church should do it. He's giving us the true and only foundation for the Christian life. Not a reactionary one, but one built on Scripture. Now this kind of passage is called an imperative indicative. If you don't know what that means, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a made up theological word. But what, what it really is, is what we're saying is he's been giving imperatives, so commands that we should obey, and now he's giving an indicative, a reality, a reason for that obedience. And in that, we've seen Paul talk about what a church should look like, things for us to obey. But now as we move kind of into what what I think is the meat of Paul's argument, why should we obey everything he's talked about? We've had a chapter and a half of commands for us to follow. Why do we listen to that? Because if there's no reason beyond that's just what Christians do, does that really convince us? I mean, that would just be a burden And I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm tired of burdens, right? We get those every other day of the week. So why should we obey? Well, I'm going to argue this morning that the answer to that question is what we've titled the sermon today. The finished work of Christ. See, in these verses, Paul's re- revealing to us the main character of history, of the church, and of our lives. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his victorious person and work that serves as the beginning, middle, and end of God's people. All that we do and all that we are. And I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating today. We never go past the gospel, we just go deeper into it. What Titus has been so far is a model for churches to go deeper into the gospel by obedience. And now what Paul is doing is he's laying out this beautiful picture of the gospel and say, this is why you should listen to me. Not because it's what Christians do, not because it's what people who follow Paul do, but because this is where it comes from. But like any good Baptist, Paul has broken his argument into three points. And we're going to go ahead and dive right in with point number one. The appearing of Christ, our salvation. The appearing of Christ, our salvation. It's from verses 11 and 14. So I, I, I love how Paul speaks of the incarnation here. Look in verse 11. What does he say? The grace of God appearing. How cold have we gotten in the church to the incarnation that it becomes something else to, to buy at a Hobby Lobby at Christmas? We miss what the incarnation is. It is the very grace of God himself. The son of God. The the, the word is condescending in humility toward his creation. The infinite becoming infant. And rather than coming as a herald of his own greatness... 
rather than a conqueror who has come to claim the the creation that's rightfully his. And, And more than this judge who stands justly accusing us, full of condemnation, how does he appear? As the grace of God himself. The undeserved favor of our creator poured out on a fallen humanity that has rejected him. That's why he has the title, the grace of God. And if you're here today and and you're not a Christian, I I wonder what all this is going to sound like to you. Why does it matter how God comes, (laughs) right? Why does it matter that God came? And if I'm honest and I look around, I don't know if this is a, if this is, this God has showed up in this world, is he worth following? And and here's where I want to pick up on a thread that that I'm going to ask you to hold on to this morning. It's not going to be on your screen, but just go ahead and keep it in the back of your mind throughout today. In God's original design, humanity walked side by side by him in, in perfect relationship. But we know that sin, rebellion against God, entered the picture. And because God is perfect, he cannot be near imperfection, near evil. And thus, humanity, we were cast from his presence. And see, now now we have a problem. Because you and I, we were made for God. And yet now we're alienated from him. And more than that, we are his enemy. Do you see the problem? And so we stand justly accused before him with no hope for anything except for a guilty sentence. And all our good works are nothing more than filthy rags. Think as we've walked through scripture how we see pictures of dead men who got just, or of men who got just a glimpse of God. They fell down like dead men and they wept at their sin. But God, knowing that all our roaming would never redeem us, came in the person and work of Christ, the grace of God appearing. So this is what I want you to hold on to this morning. The God that we could never approach in our sin has appeared to us full of grace and truth. Just try to grasp that. Did we deserve it? No. The only truth that should have been handed down to us is a sentence of judgment. And and, and there's more for us to look at today, but do you see how vast an ocean, just this little phrase is, the grace of God has appeared. Drink deeply, church. We are not sheep left out to wander in the dark, clawing our way through this life, but the light of the world has come unto us. And that's more than just a Christmas sentiment. And he's come to fulfill a mission for a purpose. Look at verse 11. What is that purpose? To bring salvation to all the earth. So what does that mean? It means that this grace is not just for the Jew, but to the Greek, to the evil 
lazy, gluttonous cretans, and even to a wretch like me and you. This salvation that comes to all the world means that no one is too far gone. This statement is how we can know that on the last day a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language will gather around the throne to worship Him. Because His grace has appeared. And look what His grace does. Verse 14, purifies for Himself a people for His own possession. Church, I, I ask you today, are you among that people? Are you one who's been redeemed from all lawlessness and purified so that you belong to Christ alone? If not, what are you waiting for? No roaming on this earth can ever redeem you. Come to Him. The only one who would give Himself, think of what we just read in Romans 5, who would give Himself for His enemies. Just before that, Paul is making the argument, who would die for us? We know us. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Paul's just made three chapters of an argument about how evil and to the core we are depraved. And yet who would die for us? Find hope in this grace has appeared. And if you do that, if you place your trust in this Christ, you will be saved. Church, Christ is more ready to forgive than we are to sin. There is no more wrath because for your sin because it's been poured out on Christ who gave himself for us. And like we just saw, his work is finished. He has sat down complete. And for those of us who've trusted in Christ, this is what Paul's been doing the first part of Titus. He's saying, believer, church, be who you are. A people who belong to Christ for his own possession, his love. Belong to him in word and deed alone. But this work, this belonging to him in our word and our deed, not even that is left to our own power. Philippians 2 will tell us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will, to desire, and to work for his good pleasure. So the, the appearing of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection secures our salvation. It doesn't just make an escape route, it secures it, it claims it in victory. And that's why we wholeheartedly agree with the phrase, once saved, always saved. But another glorious truth that we see revealed in Scripture is once saved, always being saved. And by that, that does not mean our salvation is on the rocks. God's not sitting on the sideline like a tennis judge watching back and forth between obedience and failure, hoping that we just score just enough. What it does mean is that God loves us too much to leave us where we are. That's grace. 
he completes the good work that he begins, church. And if you are in Christ, he has began a good work and he will finish it. And he will finish it by making us more like Christ. That's going to give us our second point for this morning. The indwelling of Christ, our sanctification. The indwelling of Christ, our sanctification. This is going to be from verse 12. So when we come to, Christ, to faith in Christ, the grace of God does not remain this merely external reality that's to be experienced, but becomes a transformative internal reality. Jesus tells us in John 4 that faith is what? Is a well of living water that springs up in his people. Now is that because we always had this core of goodness deep inside of us that someone just had to trudge out? I don't need to answer that for you. We know that our hearts are desperately wicked. The Bible confirms it for us, but do we really need that answer? We know. But what it does mean is that Jesus keeps his promise in John 14 and 15 that, that, that he would send a helper and a comforter, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit in Genesis that hovers over the waters of creation is the same Spirit that indwells our soul as the agent of recreation. So why, why are we talking about this? I mean, we're talking about holiness and sanctification, and yet I haven't talked anything about stuff that we do, right? Because we so often forget where our holiness comes from. Too often we see good and right and true commands, like our passage here, to be self-controlled, upright, godly, and holy, and think it's some kind of white-knuckled Christianity that we can just pull ourselves into. We know there's a need for holiness. Remember our time in Hebrews. Without it, we won't see the Lord. So yes, we must be holy. But our pressing on in the faith and in holiness will do us no good if we get in a car with no gas. The only catalyst, for our found, or the only catalyst and foundation for our holiness is the finished work of Christ. In his life, we're given an example but is in his indwelling, we're given the Spirit's power to walk this path in faith. And my fear is that we go about our, our, our faith doing devotions, listening to sermons, engaging with the church, obeying as best we can, hoping that somehow these things will change us, produce something in our lives. But, but hear me, these don't change us. Rather, it's the God who uses them as a means to mold us into the image of his son. And you might be here this morning and thinking, so you're telling me that I can do nothing. That, that it's all up to God to, to, to change me? Yes. But what a freeing statement that is, church. It's not up to you to produce perfect obedience in yourself, in your kids, in your spouse. It's up to you to trust the God who finishes his work. 
Don't fall prey to, to, to the poison that the Galatians did. Listen to what he tells them in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes. You saw that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Church, do do you see? The finished work of Christ is what secures our salvation. It is by faith alone in this Christ that brings the Spirit into our hearts. And so let us not be so foolish then to think that it is by our works and our obedience that we will finish this race. Our salvation does not rest rest in our weak grip. It rests in the hands that hung the stars in place and He will hold us fast. Our obedience does not have the strength of our own power, but it is upheld by the word of His power in whom all things hold together. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 9 when he says, but He, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, let's be a people who boast in our weakness so that His power may always rest on us. Let us prayerfully recognize our dependence on the Spirit and boldly, expectantly even, approach the throne of of grace for power to obey. Now that may have seemed a bit like a digression, but I think it was so necessary for us to go into verse 12 with the right understanding. Let's read it again together with fresh eyes and hearts. Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Church, do you see? Where maybe at first when we read through this, we may have seen another weight of obedience, of commands thrown on our back that crushes us. Now what do we see? A beautiful work that Christ is accomplishing in us. It is for freedom that we have been set free. We're not struggling to be free. We're not struggling to, to find a release from this bondage. But we are free to pursue Christ and a life of holiness empowered by the Spirit and without fear of condemnation when we fail because His work is finished. And that's why I love the first word in verse 12, training us. The Christian life is in essence a rocky training montage, right? But but I love the grace in the word training even. Training does not assume perfection. Training and grace both assume that you need it. 
and that you must be led and guided and built up into it. If you could earn salvation by your works, if you could finish this race by obedience, there's no need for grace. If you could run this race with endurance on your own, there's no need to be trained in righteousness. But let's be honest. We all know who we are. We don't need anybody to tell us we aren't perfect. We all know that we don't measure up to the person that we want to be, much less the person who we're called to be. But God already knows that. And He has set us on this path this lifelong, progressive, growing in grace, training in righteousness. And church, at different points in, in everyone's life, that's going to look different. And, and you might be in a season right now where it feels like your sanctification is in a different place moment by moment. But what does that really look like? And... and I'd like to break that down, and we're going to use uh, something from David Pallison in one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Making All Things New. And in it, he talks about the, the varied times of sanctification that every believer will experience. And I, and I think it'd be fruitful for us today. So the first thing he talks about is uh, leaping like gazelles. Now, before the men in the room check out, <laughs> hear me out. This is when we feel the freedom from the bondage of our sin and, and run unhindered in obedience. Times when our fellowship, our time with the Lord is, is sweet and, and our faith is, is an overflowing joy. Second is the steady, measured walk. These are the slower, imperfect, but common steps of growing in obedience, of walking down the path of faith where we learn more and more of what it means to follow Christ and leave behind our sin. If you're in either of those two places right now, praise God for the work that he's done. Look how far he's brought you. And church, press on in faith. Third are the seasons of trudging and crawling. So you're still moving forward, right? But we all know what it's like to walk through the snow, right? You're trudging and, and it's tiresome. Or if, if you're a runner out there, this is towards the end of the race when your body starts to inform you of how tired you are. And every step is like heavier and heavier. As he says in the book, you don't seem to get very far very fast. But, praise God for the power to resist the temptation of Satan. And so flee to the rock that will not move even if you have to trudge or crawl. Fourth is simply facing the right direction. I think he describes it as like laying down. These are the moments where it takes all we have to cling to Christ, but we refuse to go backward. In these times, we're reminded to have a Psalm 88 mentality. These will likely be points in our life that are full of despair but they are despair-oriented in the Lord's direction. If you find yourself here this morning, I would encourage you to remember Peter's words when Jesus asked the disciples if they too would leave him. He said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And fifth and finally for today are the moments of rebellion. He describes a couple 
um, such as slowly wandering off the path when we fix our eyes on the wrong thing or falling asleep in the car during a blizzard, right? Cold, apathetic. And his final one is uh, a total failure, which he, he gives the term a swan dive into the abyss. Church, these are the moments that we all can relate to, that make us feel like second-rate Christians who just can't get their act together. What is wrong with me? Church, if that's you today, hear this truth. There are no second-rate Christians because there is no second-rate Christ. The same grace that empowers us to run like gazelles in one season is the same grace that will pick you up out of the abyss of rebellion, clean you off, and put you back on the path. G.I. Packer said, he does not grow disillusioned with us as I so often grow disillusioned with myself. He already knows us. To pick up that thread again, he's the friend of sinners, not just in the pages of scripture, but sinners like me and like you. And now, the God that we could never approach, who has appeared, now indwells his people never to leave or forsake them or cast them out. No matter what season of sanctification they find themselves in. So how do we respond to such an amazing grace appearing? We remember that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We can do nothing without him. But when we are attached to the vine, we produce the beautiful fruit of obedience. The fruit of the Spirit. Where we are trained to reject worldly lusts or worldly desires. Where we want to be self-controlled, upright, godly. If we look at all we've seen in Titus, we, we desire to seek out godly pastors and preaching. To sit under their authority. We grow in our distaste and our hatred for false teaching and we fight against it in our own lives. Looking at chapter 2, ask yourself, would your loved ones describe you in the characteristics laid out for us that we saw last week? And when we fail, because we will, we Run to the one who has redeemed us from all lawlessness and purified us because his grace is sufficient. Even for you and me. Don't be like Jonah and flee from his presence hoping to clean yourself off and then come back like everything's okay. Flee to Christ. The only one who can clean us off. For he is gentle and lowly and his burden is light. And he promises that even the filthiest sinner is redeemed by the prayer, Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Please do not hear me say that our obedience does not matter. Of course it does. But do hear me say that it's not based in your power and what a gift that is, church. But it is in prayerful dependence of the finished work of Christ transforming us. 
This all reminds me of a quote by John Newton. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. Not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Church, let us be who we are. A people for his own possession. Zealous for good works. And all the while we can work out our salvation in this life with an expectant hope that our groaning and our straining will one day be complete at, the, at our great God and Savior's return. And that's going to be our third point for today. That the return of Christ, our consummation. The return of Christ is our consummation. If you don't know what that means, hang on to it. But we're going to be in verse 13 with this. It probably does not look, I can tell you it doesn't look like it now, but I used to run long distance track in high school. Um, I'd run the two and the four mile. And when, when you start out, you have a track coach, which you're like, what can it, like just run, <laughs> you know? But uh, they, one of the things that our coach taught us was how to run with an eye toward the finish. See, in, in long, long distance track is different than sprinting where you just give it all you got. Long distance track, you, if you ran too hard at the start, you'd be out of gas, and you just watch everybody run by you at the end, and it's demoralizing. But if you ran too weak at the start, you'd be so far back that when the time came to bust it open at the end, you couldn't catch up. So our coach would teach us to run so that we would win. We always had an eye where the finish line was so we knew how to pace ourselves. And I think that's why Paul so often uses the idea of this life, this Christian life being a race. And I, and I believe that this is one of those passages where Paul is saying, look, here is the finish line. Run to it. We can pursue Christ with our lives in this present age because we know that one day he will return and this race will be over. And in verse 13, that word waiting, we see it elsewhere in Scripture used to describe a looking for or an anxious waiting. Not like a fearful, but just like a desiring, like come quickly. As Christians, we aren't content in this world because we have a taste of the one to come. So we look ahead with an expectant hope for Christ's return. But something that I really want to take time to look at in this verse, because I missed it in much of my sermon prep, look at what Paul says Christians are to wait for. Are they called to wait for an end to their suffering, look ahead to that? No. When their sin is going to be finally cast out, that's going to be a joyful day, but no. Not even an end, to, or not even the fact that they'll be in heaven. What are we waiting for? The appearing of our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the grace of God. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, do, do you see? Our hope is not simply in the world to come, but that is eclipsed by a greater hope, His appearing. The one who bought us and redeemed us, a people we belong to, or a, a God we belong to. We will finally and totally be reunited to our first love, church. 
So what is Paul doing? He's ripping our eyes from the wrong path, from worthless and fleeting worlds, and placing our eyes on something of far greater value, Christ. And and rather than me try to paint this picture for you, I'm going to let Scripture do it. So listen with me. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep. No more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Church, do you see? This is why we cast off every weight and sin that ensnares us and run with endurance. The only one in all creation worthy to open the scroll is the one who redeemed us, the grace of God who draws us to himself. And he will hold us fast. Look, I beg you, look to heaven this morning. Don't look at me, don't listen. Look to heaven. And pick up that thread with me one last time. The God that we could never approach, who has appeared to us in Christ who drew near to us, reconciling us to the Father by the indwelling work of Christ in the Spirit, one day will appear again to dwell with us forever. Hear me once more, church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He, hear that, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
It is done. The finished work of Christ means that the God we could never come near will someday be our home. This is why we can spend our life straining in obedience toward him. We know that we will dwell with him who makes all things new forever. Rest in and run with endurance to this Christ. Let's pray. Father, I have preached your powerful word in weakness. But we are confident that it will not return void. We pray that you would accomplish what you set out to do. Purify us from lawlessness and train us in righteousness that we might be prepared for heaven. Help us hunger and thirst for your return with an expectant hope that we will be satisfied. In this we pray that his peerless worth would constrain us and we would see Christ as he truly is, crowning him unrivaled king. The lamb who is worthy. And when we run to you, Lord, give us strength to run like gazelles. And when we swan dive into the abyss, don't let us be like Jonah. But clean us off and teach us to run to the one who is making all things new. It's in the name of Christ, the grace of God, and our blessed hope we ask these things. Amen.